and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. This is Eric Arneson. And Nathan F. Joseph Harrison. And Anthony. And tonight we have our favorite returning guest. Chuck Dunning. Yeah, <laughs> Chuck Dunning. Our only returning guest so far. Let me let me clarify that I'm your favorite returning guest. <laughs> you are absolutely, absolutely our favorite returning guest. Uh, and Chuck, uh, as you all remember from uh, from that incredible episode that we recorded like almost a year ago, Chuck uh, wrote this book called Crap. What was it? Contemplative Masonry. <laughs> was that it? Contemplative Masonry. Is that right, Chuck? That's it. That's okay. the book. Yep. And, um, and, uh, what is going on? It's, it's, you guys, it's programming computers. something as we're going. Computers. Eric's computer looks like the scene from the matrix where you just watch code <laughs> raining down. Yeah. <laughs> Everything on his, every operating system on his computer is handmade. It works. <laughs> it works mostly. <laughs> um, so Chuck, uh, thanks for coming back on our show. I know that last time was really horrible for you in that, um, it took a lot of like therapy to get over it and stuff. <laughs> I really enjoyed how you organized this mess, though. Yeah, you came in and took a bunch of ADD idiots and just like put us on track. <laughs> yeah, I have very different recollection of the whole experience. I'm really pleased to be back with you guys. Oh well, actually, we're pretty happy to have you back too. I mean, you'll notice that it's the only time that I've managed to get everybody to show up at the same time. Ah, so I, I just thought maybe that was coincidental. No, no, I think it's I think it's because of you. It's because of you. Uh, so, Thanks. Thanks, so your 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 book is kind of um, it's kind of like a big deal, right? It, it's picking up some steam, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that's so great about it is it's it's really taking, it's really sort of like introducing or reintroducing all of the stuff to Freemasonry that wasn't there for a long time. And you're kind of going all over the country. You've been on, like in the last year, you've been on, what, like six different podcasts, some of which have been Masonic. Maybe all of them have been Masonic, except for this one, which is not a Masonic podcast. Except for yeah. this one, that's right. <laughs> and um, and you've, you've met a lot of Masons, and you've spoken at a lot of lodges, and you've just sort of been exposed to a lot more Freemasonry, and especially Freemasons that are interested in Western esotericism than uh, than maybe anybody else in the world, actually. Holy crap, you're an expert. Hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is scary. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us uh, sort of a 30,000-foot view of what that's like? Sorry about the manager speak, but we're in an oh, office. Wait. <clears throat> wait, Before we get what? to that, we, uh, we went and saw uh, Johnny Royal's film oh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago and saw you on the silver screen. In what in Chuck's, Guthrie, Oklahoma? Chuck's in a movie. Yes, yeah. he is. Oh, yeah, for like a second and a half. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, ca- I wish he would have captured some interviews with you. I'm really glad to get Jim Tresner and Bob Davis on there. Like somebody finally did it. That was beautiful. But yeah. it was nice to see you. Well, talk. look, you know, 
when you've got Jim Tresner and Bob Davis around, it's it's pretty hard to get anybody else in. I mean, yeah, not because of the way they are, but because you definitely want to give them all the time you can. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. I think Johnny said the reason he did it was because he didn't want to overshadow their presentations with yours. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a show about beer, isn't it? Oh yeah, what are you yeah. probably had a few already? Isn't it? <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about that. What are you drinking? Yeah. Oh, I so in my Lodge Veritas beer glass. Yes. Yeah, nice. That, nice. Um, I, I got, got that for speaking at their lodge. It was a really nice gift. Well, where's is that in Oklahoma? It's in Norman. It is. It's in Norman, Oklahoma. Oh, that's uh, that's like Matt and Joey's uh, home. Yes. Yep. Yes. And you, your a, your mother lodge. They're an observant yes. lodge there. It's also in that movie. Oh, where, yeah. Where the knights are. That's cool. We had a fantastic festive board together one night, and I did a presentation on um, essentially the divine feminine in Freemasonry, and we had a great great time. And they gave me that wonderful glass, and I have it filled with. You can see that. Rar and Sons Winter Warmer. Ooh, it's an English style dark ale. Um, and uh, I just, it's just one of my favorite beers. I've got a I've got another Rar beer to back that one up with. Um, but um, yeah, this is made right here in Fort Worth, and uh, it's got uh, it's got real nice English hops in it. Um, so it's not, it's not super tart or sour, but it's definitely got a nice, um, you know, kind of that vegetable-y kind of quality sometimes that hops gives a good beer. And then, um, it's got some, it's got some real no nice notes of, of something. I, I kind of think sometimes I taste dates. Yeah. In this beer. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that happens a lot, yeah. especially in darker beers. Yeah. I'm not sure what yeah. does it. Is it the... Is it just the sugar? The grain bill? Yeah. Yeah. Rar makes, I don't know if they still make it, but they made one of my favorite American triples ever. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's a Belgian triple. Well, what I'm going to, yeah. I'll tell you what I'm going to back it up with is the ugly, the pug, ugly pug by Rar and Sons, which is their black lager. Ugly, ugly pugs are the best dogs. <laughs> we've got a we've got a surprise backup beer for for later on that um, that will reveal only for those people who stick through the tedium of our conversation for long enough. All right. Okay. But right now, do you guys know what you're drinking? I'll be revealed in the thirty second minute. Yeah, the th <laughs> thirty second hour. We're gonna thirty be second hour. <laughs> We're gonna record until we run out of hard disk space. Uh, which might be 32 minutes who knows uh, but what what are you guys drinking now you guys are all having the same stout the ex, ex novo ex novo monkey tail ex novo monkey tail actually that's not the tell me about it. it it's the yeah what does it taste like Joey it's actually I mean it tastes it's like good, butter but there's a it's like fair amount of diacetyl in it which isn't necessarily a good thing you want in a beer yeah it's buttery popcorn it's a a sign of fermentation oh gone wrong can i can but I, it's still good let me taste that i so this is it's not from for it's more an issue with the boil time look at you getting all granular <laughs> oh jesus <laughs> i don't think i ever knew what that flavor was I oh that, either well jesus so that really that really diminishes this my beer everywhere the, we work for free <laughs> it wasn't a vigorous enough boiler for a long time <laughs> Oh really? Because they 
the base grain was probably Pilsner, uh-huh. and they didn't boil it for long enough, or they didn't have long enough. It's still good. I'm not going to talk shit on them because it's still good. Also, <laughs> also, it was free because we are at WeWork. Oh, yeah. Where people work. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I was working here today, for instance. I, I know that there's a lot of people out there who don't believe that I work, but it happens from time to time. And WeWork is also fantastic at target marketing. So anybody that's listening to this or looks at the podcast is going to get lots of display ads showing up on their Facebook and... It's going to be awesome. Well, I mean, you know, I, I suppose at this point, WeWork is a sponsor since they've given all of us free beer. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, we should probably get more money out of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want I'm, a free space. I'm drinking uh, from, I'm drinking an IPA and I can't remember the brewery that I hadn't heard of. And I probably should have paid more attention. It's a very mediocre. It's a very mediocre IPA. It has that kind of like. Overly sweet flavor that some IPAs get, like they too much crystal malt, too much crystal malt, and the hops are not very (laughs) exciting. Yeah, like it's hoppy, but it's kind of hoppy in the way where it's they just wanted you to know that they added a ton of hops. Yeah, it's hoppy and like a Christmas tree. It's got a beautiful color. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's a great color, but um, it's all from the crystal. The color ain't everything. I mean, I was pretty excited about the both of them because they were free. Yeah, I mean, the free, I think, really helps the flavor. The freedom, you know, as we say in the open source world, free is in soft, no, wait, free is in speech or free as in beer. Anyway, do you guys really say that? Yes. Nice. <laughs> so, Are we used to? So, Chuck, has, has your book caused a revolution in the... Uh, meditation practices of masons across the country? Mm. Well, I can't say that it started a revolution, but I'll tell you this. One of the things that I am experiencing is, is um, connecting more with brothers around the country, both like in my travels and also that are contacting me uh, by email to let me know that, you know, they're practicing meditation, that, They've been practicing meditation for years, and it's just not something that they've talked about, um, and um, or that they've tried to talk about it, and people haven't been very receptive. It's like, what's that got to do with Freemasonry? And um, that you know, I'm throwing in that accent because that's the, that's what I would we hear in hear my neck of the woods. I, I heard it. I detected. I, I couldn't tell. It all sounded the same to me. Oh, well, yeah. thanks. <laughs> Meditation ain't got um, nothing to do with Freemasonry, right? Yeah, <laughs> and so uh, I, yeah, I think there's just a lot of brothers that are starting to. What one of the things that I hoped for when I wrote the book, and I, and I kind of mentioned this in the preface, that I thought it was time for those of us that do this sort of thing to start letting ourselves be more visible. Um, and and I think that one of the things that my book has done is it has encouraged more brothers who do have some sort of an inner practice to talk about it as part of their Masonic experience and, um, and not just keep it a private part of their Masonic experience, but something that they share with their brothers. What have you seen as, so have you, as you've gone around and done this, like, is it just uh, meditation that you've seen as, as the private practice that Masons have or, are you running into like a lot of ceremonial magicians who are masons, or like Buddhists who are masons, or or even just an yeah, increase yeah. in education? Yeah, yeah, or focus on education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say all of the above. above. What um, was that beeping noise? That's just telling him his things, not doing things. 
Okay, keep going. Oh, okay. shit. Thought, maybe, maybe my head was about to explode or something. Um, so I would say that it's all of the above. I've seen, uh, you know, I mean, there are, there are Masons out there practicing TM. Uh, you know, and most of the time, people that practice TM aren't real hesitant to talk about it. People that practice TM like to tell people that they practice TM. And, um, but there, there are a number of brothers that I've met that practice TM that uh, have, you know, that, that are saying, man, this is great. You know, and I've always thought that this was a meaningful part of my Masonic experience and so on. And, and definitely, you know, people that are from uh, esoteric traditions, um, like, um, you know, like Hermeticism, so that you have people practicing ceremonial magic, um, other esoteric traditions, mystical uh, forms of, of practice, um, definitely Buddhists out there. Um, I've gotten a number of emails from Buddhists mm -hmm. around the country uh, who, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that I think a lot of our Buddhist brothers or brothers that are using Buddhist practices that don't necessarily identify as Buddhist, um, the fact that it's a, an Eastern kind of thing, um, and especially if they do identify as Buddhist, they that kind of marks them as even more different, you know? A, a person who's into Hermeticism or Rosicrucianism or some form of mystical uh, Western religion that's not real foreign from what we do in Freemasonry, even though a lot of guys might be resistant to it. I mean, certainly a lot of those things are directly mentioned in the Scottish Rite, for example. Um, and so they can kind of say, well, you know, there it is. You know, it's it's in the Scottish Rite. These things that I do are, are talked about in the Scottish Rite. So, you know, it's not that foreign. But when you start talking about Buddhism, then then it becomes a different thing. And and there are a number of those brothers who really do feel a sense of isolation. And so I have I've been grateful for the opportunity to connect with them and let them know you are definitely not alone. Um, and um, uh, and and, you know, I hope that you find a way to 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 let your presence be known and uh, because there are other brothers out there like you that would want to connect with you. Yeah, so, speaking yeah. about speaking about boot speaking of speaking of Buddhism, the Heart Sutra. Anytime mm -hmm. I'm in a group setting and like chanting the Heart Sutra, I feel like I'm in some weird way future realm chanting this future religion. You know, yeah. no mind, there's no no grasping, all this stuff. It's it's amazing, amazing technology. Yes. To refer to Scientology yeah. terminology, but it's it's good stuff. It is, it is. I mean, all of these traditions have something to offer. Um and um I, you know, one of the things that I want to avoid is saying that they all lead to the same place because they don't. No. Um they, you know, there can be points of overlap between a lot of these traditions, but every tradition has its uniqueness. And some of them are very different. When you really start getting deep into the philosophies, they can be significantly different. But there's something about this Buddhism thing that I want to touch on. And, and that's um, years ago, my friend Ted Berry and I got together. <laughs> Teddy, and, uh, Teddy Bear. Uh, Ted Berry. <laughs> yeah, what a great guy. 
Are we allowed to admit that we know him? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, you, you are now. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> although so I personally have never seen him naked. Thank so God. Ted Barry and I, uh, <laughs> we got together and both having a fondness for Buddhism in different ways, um, got to talking about it and we recognized that there were a lot of koans, those those kind of riddles or parables that are used in Zen to, to kind of get you past the limitations of strictly rational thinking. Um, we recognized that there was a parallel between those and, and some of the things that we had experienced in Freemasonry. Um, just the idea of looking at a symbol and recognizing that, okay, yeah, we get an explanation of the symbol, but we're told not to stop there. And the more you dig into a symbol, there's just like all of these kinds of things that start to come out and possibilities of meaning and so on. Um, particularly if you listen to your own intuition and allow your own imagination to, to kind of play with it. Um, and, and in koans kind of do some very similar things. And so what we did was we had a lot of fun looking at old traditional Zen koans and 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 turning them into uh, using putting them in Masonic language in the language of stonemasonry. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a horrible act of cultural appropriation, I'm sure. Oh, none um, of that matters. It's all bullshit. We all know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Some famous guy named Jay Harrison, I think. <laughs> Jay dot Harrison. Yeah. Uh, Joey, Joey's the only one who gets to feel strongly about cultural appropriation here. So, do you true. have any any feelings about this? No, I think it's great. Anytime you can steal like an artist, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, so you just that but, vein that runs through everything. Yeah. So, are you guys? But, uh, do you guys have actual like? Zen Masonic koans. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's great. Go online, go online and do a search. Google Zen Masonry, all one word. But did you run Zen into Masonry. obstacles as far as is the whole of Western esotericism is more or less based on dualism? How does that jive with Eastern philosophy, where there is no? Yeah. Oh man, that's um, the most well, scholarly question that's been asked in the <laughs> entire history of our podcast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know when Matt starts talking, things yeah. are going to happen. And, we gave know, him some beer beforehand. That's yeah. <laughs> uh, a really great question. One of the fantastic things about koans is is that they're really not written superficially in a way that assumes any particular philosophical orientation. Chuck, shush. What? We're supposed to talk. <laughs> what? I'm just... Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Fools! Oh, Joey. Yeah, the those, yeah, those who know talk, those who don't know don't talk, or something like that. <laughs> nice. I'm going to dig through these. Thank you for doing that. Uh, there will be a link to the uh, Masonic koans in the show notes. Zen masonry. Zen it's masonry. actually, uh, we had a side of our own back in the day when there was this thing called GeoCities. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yes. Millennials may not remember GeoCities. Yeah. But um, but they love gifts, so they would love GeoCities. Just, you realize so, you, that just GeoCities, so you know, Chuck, I've got Bitcoin being advertised on your site. <laughs> okay. Also, I don't want to And a guy you... that looks just like you. Oh, yeah. Look at that. <laughs> kind it's, of. It's the second most interesting man <laughs> wow. in the world. <laughs> you know, Chuck, uh, GeoCities went away in it doesn't look uh, anything like 1999. Yeah. Yeah, so we had our own site on GeoCities, um, and then it went away, but I saved all the material, and then Tom Acousti had been a real big fan of what we were doing, and he asked if he could put all that material on another website, and so he did, um, and he used WordPress. It's on a WordPress site of some kind, and I can't remember what the address is, but you can find it if you search for Zen Masonry. And we not only translated traditional koans, into Masonic language, we actually wrote some original ones of our own, and um, and I, and I think if you're if you're interested in uh, the possibility of a Buddhist kind of experience in Masonic language, I don't know of anything else out there but that. So you didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I so you didn't find you didn't have much trouble reconciling the dualism with Eastern philosophy, or no? Because again, it's it's. Um, it leaves the way koans are written is that is that their koans are just written in terms of like real human interactions, like the kind of interactions that people have on an ordinary daily basis, uh, or or the kinds of conversations that guys might have in the lodge. In the case of some of the koans that that we revamped or or created, and um, and really kind of ordin- often kind of ordinary kind of conversations. Uh, or ordinary interactions, not not in terms of like asking questions about the most profound mysteries of the universe or something like that. But even in some cases when they do that, koans leave a question mark. They're, they're kind of like, koans are kind of like mysteries. They never really answer themselves. They never really tell you what what exactly they mean or what they're talking about. They They leave that for you to discover. Based on where you're, based on where you're at in your in your uh, development. Well, right, right. And so, if if you're seeing things from a purely dualistic point of view, as you dig deeper into the potentials of meaning in a koan, you're likely to find kind of dualistic resonances in different ways. But if you're a non-dualist, then you're probably going to discover some non-dualist resonances in in the koan in some way or another. But then there's this other thing about Zen, and this is, and that is that that in Zen Buddhism, the koan is actually used to try to break you free from any particular philosophical mindset. It's supposed to, um, it's it's supposed to lead you to a place where uh, only your your deepest intuition can take you and um uh and and then something speaks or something is revealed within your consciousness that isn't about necessarily uh jiving with a particular philosophical viewpoint well, that's, uh, and so that's you kind of might like be a, you might be a flash of 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 monist insight, or you might be a guy that comes in thinking you're a hardcore non-dualist and all of a sudden go, bam, oh my gosh, there's some dualism here that I have to deal with. That makes me think of uh, sort of the 
you know, if you look at the Corpus Hermeticum, the different tracts of the Corpus Hermeticum sort of waffle between uh, dualism and non-dualism, where some yes. of them seem to say really strongly, like, while you love the body, you will never love God. And then other ones are like, you're here because you love nature and the body and all of this stuff. And it's the unification of that with the divine, which is your goal. Yeah. And like, sometimes it almost seems like nobody really knows yeah. Because <laughs> no one does. <laughs> yeah. We're all just a bunch of monkeys clinging to a rock flying through space. No, no, no. Somebody well, knows. Yeah. Oh, wait, hold on. Nate knows. Go ahead, Nate. Oh, Nate. I don't. Well, I wouldn't personally say that I know, but I think I might know someday. Ah. Uh, oh, yeah. Like Tuesday? Well, maybe Tuesday. <laughs> and, and there are different kinds of knowing, right? Right. There are kinds of knowing that can't be translated into words. You're talking right. about the biblical sense, right? No, he's talking about like, <laughs> like in, in English, we only have one word for knowing. But if you go back, like classic lang- classical languages have multiple words for what it means to know something. So you can know something because it's... Even like with the word truth, like oh, yeah. there was the pre-Socratic notion of truth, Aletheia. Uh-huh. Truth wasn't the truth itself, it was the unveiling of the truth that was the truth. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so you have like, you have like gnosis, which is direct experience of, of knowledge. And then you have like, enter Jim Tresner. You have like, uh, <laughs> what is truth? Which is like based on faith. <laughs> you have like knowledge that is based on, on scientific observation, but you have like these different ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. And it's yes. not necessarily not it, like one of them isn't necessarily better than the others. It's just, yeah. it's just there, you know, they're just different ways of knowing stuff. Yeah, so I'll give you an example here of a, of a way of knowing sometimes that we have. And that is, it, it's, it's, it's really simple. Everybody's familiar with this. So you're trying to remember somebody's name, and you know you know that person's name, but you just can't remember it. You can't say the, you can't say the sounds. You can't, you can't see the letters in your mind. The name you just it. doesn't come, but you know you know it. That kind of knowing can also happen with with things that um, that are of a transcendent or a mystical, metaphysical kind of nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I see people in dreams. Uh, I don't mm. see like the face or the the person that they are in my dream. I see the representation of my subconscious understanding of them. Wait, so what do I look like in your dreams? Well, you look like Eric. Oh, so like but a glowing a, Adonis, a, yeah. Like, Shining, made of gold, twenty feet tall. That's why I see me in my dreams too. Right. That's interesting. Let's talk about that knowing more. So, in any given field, whatever it is, whether it's art or masonry or you know business or whatever it is, you you become a master at whatever your craft is. And all of a sudden, you're not operating in this technical realm anymore. You're operating at the realm of creative genius. You're flowing. Mm-hmm. And it there's a knowing that just shows up. Yeah. The muscle memory. That's, yeah, the spontaneous knowing. That might be well, kind of gnosis, actually. It, well, yeah, it's, it, it is kind of a gnosis. Yes, that manifests, too. Yeah, but because that's that, that's, that's something, something that Joey kind of touched on there. There's this kind of creative genius that what that what happens like in when we talk about an artist or we talk about 
somebody that works in a trade like masonry or something like that. Or a even, genuine, even a teacher or somebody, whatever, sure. whatever you're a master at, it, it seems to yes. show up. When, when you become a genuine master at something, you, you're, you're not only well-versed and experienced in the actual techniques and you know how they're done and everything, but you're able to serve as kind of a channel for something that just kind of spontaneously happens through you. And you kind of observe it happening through you rather than making it happen. And, um, uh, and in fact, Masters at that level often have forgotten a lot of the nuts and bolts of the basics and the things that got them to where they are. So you think about a guy like Picasso, for example, a great painter like Picasso. Now, I know a lot of people don't like his art, but the thing that made him a master was that he he became a very skilled, excellent classical artist and painter. And then he had this creative genius that just took over and, 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 and started doing all of this stuff. Sorry about that. It's okay. Is it somebody important? No. Is it Matt? Did Matt just pocket dial you? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay. Picasso. Well, and if you watch some of Picasso, the videos of Picasso's, Picasso making his paintings, he's just like feverishly going. There's no second guessing his technique. He's just he's just going. Right. He just right. knew what to he's do. He's just letting it flow through him. And I mean, and there are countless examples. Anybody that has that has practiced any kind of art for a lengthy period of time, like poetry or writing music, lots of guys are musicians. They know what it's like to just all of a sudden find the music coming out of them. And it's, it's, and it's something new and it's something fresh. And yes, it takes advantage of all their old experience and everything, but they're not thinking it into existence. It's just coming through. It's just creative genius. It's that wonderful flow state. Yeah. It is, yes. Do you think yeah. this is related to how, uh, like, the Greeks saw the muses? Yes, yeah, I do. I think that that the muses are one way of kind of understanding where that comes from, how that happens. And that's sort of funny because, like, the muses, there's obviously like an attempt to categorize art, but you know, yeah, two things. One, I'm going to finish this thought. And then two, it's time for the thirty-second minute unveiling. Yes, you don't, you don't have to. Yeah, you can listen to me finish. Okay. Right, so, <laughs> so one of the things that's really interesting about that is that um, when the Greeks sort of broke down these these categories of like muse inspiration, you know, they talked about first of all like multiple types of poetry. There's like lyrical poetry and epic poetry, or I'm not going to remember these accurately. So I hope hope that. Uh, everybody listening to this is currently like on a treadmill and can't fact check me on Wikipedia. But, <laughs> but one of the muses has to do with history. So like telling, telling, well, and, and they didn't, they didn't look at history in the same way we do. So, so their history would have been like Homer style, like somebody reciting the history of their ancestors. But for them, this, that sort of flow state or like artistic reverie or trance or whatever, um, was, really deeply tied into their culture and their cultural identity in a way that I don't know that we totally have that all the time now. 
No, no, we don't. And, and to a large extent, our current culture uh, doesn't make room for that. Um, I mean, we've got Beyonce. What's that? There's yeah. always Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think sometimes we do see it in popular, uh, you know, in, in popular culture, but but rarely. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things Nate was talking about, he's, he mentioned muscle memory. And that's one of the things about about genuine masters that that can allow creative genius to flow through. A lot of people can, a lot of people can express creative genius, but it's the com it's the combination of creative genius with with experience with um, uh, a. a a practice, the development of skills and uh, and sense of uh, of aesthetics and whatever it is that you do that that generates genuine masterworks. Um, so, for example, you know there are people who can be extremely musically talented, but but without the experience of actually developing their their skills and 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 learning what other people have done then their talent never really comes to full fruition mm -hmm. um, and, and that's that's one of the things that distinguishes genuine mastership from say something like uh, um, you know just a, a, a savant or something like that right. sure yeah absolutely I think <clears throat> to me it's it's the there is a there's a defining point where whatever you're doing, regardless of what it is, whether it's art or a different skill of some kind, masonry, um, computer design, graphics. There's a point where you go from being just somebody somebody that's learning how to do it to where you are a true artisan of the craft, where it's something that just is innate to your character now, and it just flows through you as if it was divinely inspired. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Beer thirty. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Chuck, you're opening what? Are you, the ugly pug. The ugly pug. Okay, we've got four bottles of what did we decide we we're going to call this thing? Mapcon. Mapcon Volume One. Mapcon. Even though it was Mapcon Three, we're going to call this beer Mapcon Volume One. This is Mapcon Volume One. Uh, it's a Belgian ale. It was going to be a triple, but it came in a little low. So it's a Belgian ale with cold brew coffee. This Can is you a, see the color of the head on this ugly pug? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, nice. It looks nice. Kind of slightly off-white. Yeah, it has... You, what you can't see is what... There's just a slight red tinge to it. It also looks like it's a pretty dark beer. I don't know anything about this one. Can you tell us? It's, it's a black lager. Oh. And it's got... It's got it definitely has some uh, roasted coffee notes to it. Mm -hmm. Does it snore at night like normal pugs? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he might now. <laughs> it's not nearly as hoppy as the uh, the winter warmer. Um, Ooh, the thing about ugly pug is that you can drink a lot of it really fast. <laughs> is that why you've got the beer bong out? <laughs> So tell me about <laughs> yours, guys. Yeah, tell Matt, why don't you start? Yeah, go for so it. we brewed this after 
MabCon, which we call it was we get a, together. It was the last day of MabCon. Yeah, last yeah. day of MabCon. Eric and I brewed this. It was going to be a triple. I left early because I'm a pansy. Sorry. It's okay. And uh, <laughs> was missing some ingredients, and so it came in a little low. And then I decided to finish it with some cold brew coffee. Mm-hmm. So, so we're going to be up all night now. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, cheers. Well, cheers. It's good. Cheers. Yeah, Yahtzee. Yahtzee. Hilarious. <laughs> um, I held this for you. This has a Belgian taste to it. Like, mm-hmm. it's Belgian-y. It's actually very crisp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the coffee mutes the Belgianness a little bit. It kind of ends up being sweet. Mm-hmm. And this is like the kind of like the bubblegum sweet yeah. flavor. And Those a little bit of the banana flavor. Yeah. yeah. Banana. There's a banana on the nose. It's all from that oh. yeast. Mm. Um have some floral qualities to it because that's mm-hmm. one of the things I associate with Belgians. I would mm-hmm. say it might be a low one. Do you think it has floral qualities? I'm not sure. Definitely the the bubblegum. Yeah, and the nose and there's some flowery banana. stuff. I saw an The coffee is great. Like it really mm-hmm. sort of tastes like uh, it's almost it, so it's not strong, right? It's not like when you get an iced coffee and you drink mm-hmm. an iced coffee. It's kind of like a nice coffee that you've. Left out for too long, so the ice is all melted. That's what I like about cold brew coffee versus iced coffee. Right. Iced coffee is very astringent, whereas mm-hmm. cold brew is very smooth. Yeah, this is super smooth. It's delicious. What Can you tell us some stats about it? What's its ABV? ABV was 7.9%. Oh, that's not bad. No. I felt like it was going to be a lot lower because of how the final gravity was. No, it, was, it attenuated really nicely. It finished okay. at like, I want to say 10.06? Like, it's super dry. I think you... So, I, I reported the the gravity reading that I took on the podcast, but you told me later that it went up from that because um, because uh, it, it hadn't cooled down all the way yet. Right. So, and I think I measured 10.06. So, it must have gone up. No, like 10.60. 10... I think it actually was finished at 10.68. I mean, the, the, the original gravity was 10.68, but it finished oh, right. at... 10.06. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, cool. Which I don't know when we say that in brewing because it's really 1.006. 10.06. Yeah, it's just an, it's like an order of magnitude yeah. thing. <laughs> so going back to the whole, I, we just had two guys left, but before I forget, the whole the Wait, topic of, of... Should we talk about their beards while they're not here? <laughs> what do you What do you think of their beards? How are they How are they doing? Like, I got to remember, I got to this out before I forget. Um, flow states tying this back in with somewhat contemplative masonry. Yeah. Whenever you dedicate yourself to a craft, um, when you're practicing that craft, that in itself is a contemplative practice in a way. So don't you think that a contemplative practice is how you reach those flow states? Does that make any yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. Um, so it's an interesting thing, uh, uh, kind of parallel to what you're talking about here. I've been watching, I've been watching Jerry Seinfeld's show, comedians in cars getting coffee. Oh my God. I have two. I love that show. Yeah. And what, he, the one where he was with Obama was the best. He's all, he's all nervous. He's all nervous. Okay, keep going, check. So, so, so he gets together with these comedians and a lot of times what they talk about is essentially the philosophy of comedy. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how they get into their craft, right? 
and how um, and how well if you're paying attention to what they're saying you realize that they're talking about their own attentiveness what they're paying attention to which includes themselves they have they all have this kind of really refined uh, introspection uh, it's in some way about their own reactions to things. And they're also very attentive to other people's reactions to things. And they're just attentive to what's going on around them. And so in a lot of ways, what you're talking about is just mindfulness. Right. They're practicing mindfulness. Now this is, Matt, this is, you know, I mean, as a musician and as a brewer, you know what happens when you're really focused on your art or your craft that your mind is completely absorbed in doing that. And that and that becomes a contemplative practice. And then what happens sometimes is that you actually start to think about it metaphorically. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is what the old operative masons did. Is they started, they were so immersed in their craft, they began to say, okay, well, this other thing over here in life, it's a lot like this when I do this with this stone. And I yeah. see the connections there and it starts to unfold meaning and it makes it easier for me to kind of manage that other thing in life over there because I use the same experience that I had with the stone over there. It, it, the metaphor translates. Well, and it's, and, just, it's just that the progression of the physicality, the technique, it gets a little bit more abstract and then you end up in Malkuth. You know, complete yeah. abstractness that doesn't make any sense to people who don't know, who aren't masters in that particular realm. But and when you're, you're a master, yeah. that you're, it's just like a next level thought process. And you're not even thinking about it because the, the times where I reach that point where sense of self falls away are psychedelic state, float tank, or when I'm brewing, yeah. painting, or doing, when you're in that state, all sense of self falls away and Yes. So, so part of that loss of sense of self is that you're no longer thinking, what do I have to do to make this happen? You're no longer going through that process of deliberating and seeing yourself as a decision maker and a decider and a figure outer, you know, mm -hmm. a strategizer, an analyzer. You're not thinking of yourself in those ways anymore. You're just doing. You're, you're allowing the process to happen through you. Uh, you're being part of the process, and and um, and you can be fully aware that that's happening. You know, um, it's not the same as you're driving down the highway and you have highway hypnosis, and your body's driving the car, but your mind is off someplace else, thinking about something completely different. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being really fully present but no longer having that sense of you have to make a decision about every single thing you do and, and, and plan it all out and, and use those cognitive, rational kinds of processes to, to make it all happen. Rather, you're just participating. It's almost like Absolutely. a high, higher what, state of mysticism. Yeah, well, and that's what I love about the, the system, the system you developed with contemplative masonry and that it's – I mean, it's beneficial all around, but one of the more practical aspects, and I know we're not a Masonic podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> being able to practice contemplative masonry and be able to get out of the way yourself and letting the self fall away 
will make you a better mason, especially yeah. when you're performing ritual. Yes. And you get into that state, the sense of you falls away and you are able to do a better job of what you're there to do, which is to make another mason. Right. Yes, yes, absolutely right. And there's a so you're so let's let's move that kind of into the Western mysteries here a little bit, into the Western esoteric tradition. So there's this thing that they talk about in um, in hermetic traditions, like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, called the Assumption of God Forms. And and what happens is is that a person who is genuinely hooked in to ritual and prepared to perform ritual, and and is able to get into that moment of getting themselves out of the way. Um, then whatever it is that their particular role in the ritual represents kind of in an archetypal sense or in a metaphysical sense, whatever that is now has the opportunity to use their consciousness and their body as a channel to speak for the ritual, to, to speak into the ritual, to move into the ritual. Um, and, and that's a kind of mastery too. It's, it's exactly what we're talking about in terms of, of the creative genius starting to flow through because we all have these archetypes within us. You know, it's, it's not that, I mean, you can think of it in terms of like, okay, this, this officer in this hermetic ritual is supposed to represent, um, let's say the God Mars. You can, you can, if you want to think of it as there's a separate entity out there called the God Mars and he comes in and, and occupies your body for a while. And a lot of shamanistic language is you, uh, talks in those terms. But you don't have to think of it that way. Because the fact is that all of us have Mars in us. We all know what it's like to be angry. We all know what it's like to be martial. You know? And, and so it's allowing that part of ourself to just naturally, freely flow out into the, into the ritual experience and getting that personality aspect of us the the matt anthony part of us the chuck dunning part of us just letting it get out of the way yeah, yeah. i read this i read this interesting book years ago and it was like 98 2000 something like that spontaneous fulfillment of desire and it talked about it was like it was meditation taking on these god forms like whatever it is that you wanted to to have happen and you had these different correspondences the results were immediate oh, like it was it was almost like chaos ma magic but it was it was meditations taking on these god forms that could do specific things and, and it was like everything just happened it was amazing yeah. it wasn't always good it was just <laughs> it was chaos magic yeah so it looked good that reminds me of like the, the voodoo tradition where you're in you're ridden uh, by the loa, and so it's yeah it's not, not necessarily always good things that happen, but you're you're inhabited by this other spirit, this divine spirit that em, em, embodies itself in you, and you just kind of step aside and let it ride, and yeah. then it teaches you what you're supposed to learn through the process. Yes, yes, yes. yes. which is an important part of life, even the bad stuff. I mean, the bad stuff has more lessons than the good stuff, probably.
Yeah, I think that this is one of the, that what we're talking about here is tapping into kind of one of the unspoken secrets of a lot of mystery traditions, uh, whether we're talking about ceremonial magic and hermeticism or whether we're talking about, um, uh, well, we'll just, I'll just stay with that because that's the tradition that I know best outside of, uh, masonry and Christianity. Um, that in that process of training and becoming familiar with these divine energies, uh, divine entities or intelligences or beings, and and recognizing their presence within your own consciousness, uh, which you use the powers of the imagination to be able to tap into. One of the things that happens is we begin to we begin to encounter more of our own potential, more of, of the kind of the hidden recesses of our own, uh, our, our own being and our own consciousness. And, um, and not just the positive stuff, not just the comfortable, pleasant stuff, but also the uncomfortable stuff, the, the things that we typically call negative. I mean, any good thing taken to an extreme begins to become destructive and counterproductive and even self-defeating. And, and you can see that as you, so for example, we were talking about Mars. If, if you start to develop your relationship with Mars and you begin to identify with Mars and you begin to allow Mars to, uh, to, to take a more dominant role in, in your consciousness, on the one hand, you, you recognize and enjoy those wonderful, powerful, strong, assertive, uh, uh, courageous aspects of Mars and you think, yeah, yeah these are good things. things. These but are there's also danger. There's danger What's in that? Mars. There's danger in Mars. I mean in, yes. in all of the in all of the planetary character uh, archetypes there are danger, right? Like yeah. you know exactly. Venus, Venus is love, but it's also lust and it's also obsession. Or right. Jupiter Jupiter is is luck and fortune, but it's also like overindulgence. Yes. Or Saturn Saturn is is contemplation, but it's also uh, it's also like the deepest, most horrible parts of melancholy. Um, yeah. So you have like these, you have like these great qualities, and then you have these terrifying qualities, and it's almost like you, you kind of have to dip your toes into both, though. Like you don't get to, mm-hmm. you don't get to yes. experience Mars and know what Mars is about until you have the terrifying part of Mars. Exactly. And some, and that's kind of like even part of facing the shadow, isn't it? Is that you have to, yes, you have to look at yourself and look at like these aspects of, of our character, of our own character, and see like which which one of those is the most terrifying to us. Yeah, walk yes. into the woods of the darkest that's, place. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. That, you have to walk into the woods of the darkest place. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and and what happens is is that after a certain amount of training like this. You no longer have the luxury of playing these ego games with yourself about, oh, I'm just this wonderful, ethical, moral human being that <laughs> yeah. couldn't possibly do any of those evil things over there. Bullshit. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're all every monster. Yeah, the I'm, size yeah. of your shadow is equal to your light. Yeah, I constantly it, question yeah. myself. It's funny we we get this uh, we get this picture too from like like we're warned about it over and over again from uh, from the myths you know from the myths that have been passed down to us. Like there are no awesome heroes in old myths. Yeah, every single one of them might do heroic stuff, but at the same time is a total. Horrible person. Even when you get to like, because they're the east. Even of like the with Arjuna, because they're a person. Yeah. No, they're 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 reflective of us, though. So. Yeah, but everybody's just human. Like, there's no perfect person. Not everybody's we're, human. My cat's probably not. We're all just <laughs> a, we're all just assholes. <laughs> well, it's well, not even I mean, my, it's just, my cat's a great example, right? Because my cat is an incredible companion. He's very loyal to me. He's super cuddly and supportive a lot of the times. But he's still going to eat you when you die. He's going to eat me when I die. He spends a lot of time <laughs> cutting me and uh, pooping in places that he really shouldn't. Like, everything, you know, the, we, we see that archetype. Your, your uh, cat's like a giant tiger, by the way. My, my cat is like a tiny Joey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, I can see that. Um <laughs> But I mean, we, we see that that kind of pattern over and over throughout, uh, and maybe it happens in the East too. I don't know the East is the Eastern mythology as well, but I was like does. even an example of Arjuna, like yes, yes. oh Arjuna, Arjuna's yeah. a great he example. Want, like, hey, I don't want to kill all these people; these well, are my relatives. No, but that's great. Yeah, and then he's like, well, oh, then he's oh, like, well, you well anyway, God, like, if you say so. so all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's only half of humanity. What? What? Yeah. What, what harm can one arrow do? Yeah. I don't know why I find <laughs> such solace in that line of like, oh, Arjuna, pick up your bow. Oh, God. Decimate everybody. But at the same time, I understand. What, yeah. He's killing all his family, but at the same time, I understand what's being said there. My favorite thing. Terrible. My favorite thing about that particular part of uh, of the Bhagavad Gita is you can you can test fake fake mystics mm-hmm. who are like I love the Bhagavad Gita I'm like really it's about like mass murder yeah, oh, yeah. and they're like what and like did you read it do you know what was going on in there like, that's why he's so conflicted he doesn't want to kill all of his family and friends and oh it's all it's his cousins yeah. he has yeah. to he has to kill half his yeah. family he has to kill half of most of the world yeah because Krishna basically tells him like if you fire this first like, arrow it's going to happen either way this is what you're supposed to do. this is your dharma yeah. yeah your dharma is to be is to be this murderous yeah. monster yeah <laughs> i don't know i kind of feel like we would all be spared a lot of pain if if an arrow would just strike and wipe out half of us right now. That already happens. We already did that in the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> all life needs life. It's all. Korea's working on it. Yeah. Well, well one of the interesting it. things, too, is that this, Korea's this is all in Western. I mean, just think about the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Testament, the, the, the Tanakh. And what is it in the book of, is it in Isaiah that God is quoted as saying, um, I create the darkness and I form the light. Um, I beget both good and evil, something like that to that effect. That, that God actually says, look, you know, all of this shit that's going on down here, that that's all part of me. That's all from me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But and, I feel like uh, isn't that sort of explained in Lurianic Kabbalah where, where Isaac Luria... Um, explains the creation of the, the Klipoth and the shattering of the Klipoth and how it's our responsibility uh, as conscious souls in the universe to to reunite the shattered parts of the spheres because creation isn't over. We're in the middle of it. No. It's not like we're we're not living in the end result yet. We're still we're we are God creating. We're, we're in the expanding creation. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're doing it. It's us. Yeah. AI is the next evolution. But the assumption that the, there is a separation, that we've got to bring those two back together. But we're, there's no separation. Yeah, there's no. It's still us, right? Right. We just rushed I, I thought you were saying, like... We're, we rushed in too fast, and we're sort of scattered about, and we're kind of cleaning up. It's like... Look at it this way. We want to... We have a tub of Legos, and we want to build a castle. So the first thing we do, we're like... Well, we got to figure out which pieces to use. Let's just dump it out, <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's everywhere. What's well, the natural system got... of all things in the universe? It starts with chaos and all forms back into order. But so we're, that's us. We are. Yeah. But you also, the, you also you also can't you also can't assume like well, the notion of the archons stepped in and picked up all the big Legos first. No, no, archons archons are the Duplo blocks. Fuck the archons. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't they're know. the go-bots, not <laughs> the, the go-bots, not the transformers. <laughs> I think you have to discount this, <laughs> this, this idea of, <laughs> of, of emotions and everything. It's just, it's it's pure chaos. And, and I don't think there's any chaos and order. to it. I think emotions. Chaos and, chaos and order out of chaos. I don't think even constant chaos. Can you say that? Real. Can you say that in Latin? Order of chaos. <laughs> Sorry, Chuck. We Sorry, it's, yeah. it's the beard. Well, I mean, look at look at <laughs> oh, look at okay. look at tribes. Look at countries. Look at corporations. They're all these like just monkeys, fucking monkeys, right? That are, but, that are constantly warring within the organization to war against another organization. But if you look at the whole of our existence, human existence over. We're now three hundred thousand years, modern humans. The we've moved from chaos to more order. The goal is uh, the we've the natural moved. progression of things is always towards order. It so is things are still and, better and, now. And now we're now we're absolutely integrating into order with cloud based services. And, oh God! And <laughs> AI. We need a new think sponsor a, now. Think a hundred. <laughs> think a hundred. podcast for no, no, Francisco. No. Think a hundred years from now. Like we are all going to be fucking robots. <laughs> you're not. But, you're not but already that, fucking a robot. That's not doing that right now. That's, yeah. Yeah, but that's not like that's that's not that's not not evolution. We are taking sands of the earth and organic matter and creating cells, of, you sure. know, memory and everything else out of it, and integrating it into ourselves. And, we're and gonna, evolving into a different creature that is connected. We're not evolving into the next creature. We're creating the next creature. We're just a stepping the, stone. It's evolution, yeah. and it's and it's okay, yeah, right? In, in the Asclepius, in the Asclepius, we already okay. have that sort of stuff know. going on. It's in terrifying, the but <laughs> Hermes Trismegistus tells us in the Asclepius that anything that moves of its own accord is ensouled and has a soul. Hmm? So it's okay. It's okay. okay. It is okay. If so we're not up, the penultimate creation of all of existence. We, we are going absolutely. to give birth to the next creation, and things are going to move beyond us, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, yeah, man. I agree. Are we evolving, or is the universe evolving through us? I feel man. like I feel like my bladder is currently evolving to be filled <laughs> okay. with beer. So, 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 to bring it back, so to bring it back to... Sorry. This is kind of a I question. Digress. Robots. Robots. <laughs> <laughs> I think we asked this question last year when the book first came out. The difference between how receptive people were to contemplative masonry and the things that you're talking about between when you first came up with the system and the book came out. Have you noticed a difference between since the books came out and now in the overall... Mm, uh, um, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting question. 
I'm not sure it's been long enough for me to really know if there's a difference. So I guess the I guess I guess the answer is <clears throat> if there is a difference, it hasn't been striking enough for me to just answer. Oh yeah. Um, I, I, is, what I have continued to see is is more and more brothers saying, "This is what I wanted when I came to the fraternity. This is or or this is what I brought with me into the fraternity." And uh, and then when I got in, I found out that it wasn't really welcome or it wasn't really available. And um, but now I understand that there are other people. I know that there are other people out there that that want this, that are interested in this, that are doing this. And so I would say that that that's been reinforced since over the last year. That that my sense of of con- of, of of masons with genuine contemplative interests being present already present in the craft as well as coming to the craft has has been strongly reinforced there's no doubt in my mind that there's a much stronger presence there than we've been aware of for a very long time that's awesome so you feel like guys that feel like they're on an island no longer feel like they're yeah alone in the sense My Alchemical Bromance is sponsored by Miskatonic Books. Miskatonic Books is an online bookstore that focuses on rare, limited edition, and custom-made books of the highest quality. They specialize in books on the occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism, and other topics of interest to you, our listeners. Check them out on the web at miskatonicbooks.com. Is there anything yeah. that's been really surprising to you in hearing feedback from people, some some aspects of, of what you put out there that you weren't necessarily um, hmm. shooting for is not the right word, but things you were expecting that have come back since that you weren't expecting? Yeah. Um, I thought that probably what we would see was strictly a kind of grassroots kind of thing. That um, that it would start off with guys being interested in this stuff and starting to 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 get involved in it, and then they work themselves up into positions of leadership and in the hierarchy of the fraternity, and um, and and then and in those positions they make changes to uh, to to make a more welcoming place for this kind of thing in the fraternity. That sort of thing is going on, but one of the things that um, is also happening is there are, let's just, I'll, I'll take it right into Grand Lodges. There are Grand Lodge officers and, and organizations within Grand Lodges, like committees on work, education committees, or whatever they're called in a particular jurisdiction, who are even though there's not necessarily anybody with with those titles or in those committees that are particularly interested in in the contemplative thing are saying huh there's a lot of brothers out there that are interested in this and it's kind of our duty to give them what they're looking for especially since it's mentioned in the ritual <laughs> and uh, and that's been a big part of my job is has i think 
has been to help people understand that this is all right there in the ritual. You know, that, that we're not trying to impose anything external onto the craft. And so while there is this, this, this grassroots movement that's filtering up into the hierarchy, there's also these old guys that have been around forever that have never really thought about this. They're going, um, yeah, we got to make a place for this. I think there's a really good example of that in the uh, Grand Lodge of North Carolina. Um, oh, sorry. I didn't, I didn't say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that there are a lot of people that, that don't think real highly of North Carolina. Yeah. But let me tell you, some of the best masonry in the yeah. country is happening in North Carolina right now. Mm-hmm. They have got a Grand Lodge education program now that is oriented toward the esoteric side of Freemasonry, and I'm not talking about... Wait, hold on. I'm sorry, can what's, you, what's can the me? name of the brother who he's visited Guthrie several times? He has a podcast as well from North Carolina. Ben Wallace. Yes. You were on his podcast, yes. right? He does a YouTube yeah, thing, and you were like, in his garage being interviewed? That's always always I want to bring it up. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just to, for people that are interested... Yeah, his name is Ben Wallace, and there's a bunch of other guys. He's not the only one, but he's definitely kind of the figurehead of this movement in in North Carolina. He's the current master of Sophia Lodge in Salisbury, North Carolina. North Carolina wisdom lodge, and um, and he and and this cohort of brothers uh, that have found each other there. Um, it's amazing how that works. Huh? It's amazing how that works. Yeah, no kidding how people find each other like that. It's a, it's a resonance. It's a tuning fork thing. Um, they, they were empowered by the Grand Lodge of North Carolina to come in and create this program of education that is all about the esoteric, philosophical, spiritual side of Freemasonry in the craft degrees. Can you? You don't us- have to. You don't have to go into the Scottish Rite and be exposed to Hermeticism and Rosicrucianism and you know Zoroastrianism and all that stuff. Chuck, it's right there. Chuck, can you give us uh, like a, a, an example of, of some of the stuff that they talk about? Like without breaking any obligations, can you can you talk about a little bit of what they have in that program? Like what are what's a juicy tidbit? A morsel. Um, we have I we know. have one listener in North Carolina, so. <laughs> It's probably Ben. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, so we've got I, two. I know that one of the things that, that I have talked about with them, I, sh- I should add a disclaimer before I start all this. I don't know their curriculum inside and out. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I believe that they, that they include as they talk about that is Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Really? Yeah. Yeah. In, in the their... Blue Lodge? Yeah, because they're talking about being brought to light. That makes yeah. sense. Makes sense to me. Totally. Oh. I mean, think about uh, it. By the yeah, time you're I know, the third it makes degree, sense, but I'm just, I'm floored that that's... I mean, the third degree is kind of the equivalent of, the, yeah. like, it's telling you to step out of the cave, like, get out of that goddamn hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's the thing, is that you, you really need to have Ben on your show. Mm-hmm. Can you... I can make that happen. Okay. Yeah. Will Maybe it, he'll, you know, I, I know he likes beer too, so. Yeah. You know that, it, I mean, we're not a Masonic podcast. But. I know you're not. I know you're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Do you have more on that question? Or? No. So, uh, that question aside, outside of masonry, 
have you been surprised by the response? Oh, that is a good question. That's, yeah. Man, Matt, you are on fire tonight. Beer. He's, he's had like four beers. <laughs> <laughs> who, is, who is this deity that has inhabited your beer? flesh? Combination of beer and isolation. It's Bacchus. So he's being ridden by Bacchus, yeah. We, uh, we have a Vebe under his chair. It's, it's a mess in here. There's like chicken blood all over the place. <laughs> oh, we've been killing chickens for like six hours before this thing started. <laughs> There's a there's like a horde of drunken uh, bacantes outside the door ripping each other right now. I mean, no, seriously. I know there's a, there's a there's a large body of people that are interested in Masonic literature that aren't in the craft. So I'm curious yeah. what their response is. So, so yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, one of the things that I thought might happen is that the anti Masons might jump all over this. Those um, anti Masons so far, are all idiots. By the way, uh, not necessarily. There's granules of truth. <laughs> They're all bullshit. <laughs> Sorry, just just kidding. That was a joke. So far, I haven't found anything online written by an anti-Mason that references my work. Good. And until you will today. <laughs> until tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> they all probably read your work and they're like, oh. Well, I want to be a Mason now. Fake no. news. <laughs> Fake news, folks. Fake news. So that's, <laughs> that's part of the non-Masonic response that, that hasn't happened yet. Good. Um, but let, let, I let have had a number of non-Masons, um, what, what mainstream Masonry would call clandestine Masons, um, and, um, and others come to me, approach me in some way or another and say, I'm really interested in what you're doing here. Uh, some people have heard about the book and said, would this be meaningful to me or useful to me, even if I'm not a Mason? And um, are, are you divulging those secrets of Masonry? And I've had questions like that. And, um, uh, and so I, there's a, there is a lot of interest out there. It's not just limited to guys who are actually, you know, in the lodge. Um, I don't think even if even if I were an atheist and I wasn't in masonry, I would still find use in the practice. Well, thank really? you. I, there are definitely a number of practices within the book that don't have. I mean, they're not limited by. Uh, they require uh, no belief in woo or anything. That yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's yeah, true. that's true. A lot of them don't. In fact, a, a, a large number of the exercises in the book are really written as experiments. Yeah, they're, expo- like, mm-hmm. they're explorations in consciousness. And, yeah. Honestly said. So, yeah. Chuck, so, I, go do this and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, Which I, I can attest to personally. They're <laughs> very powerful. I mean, your hair fell out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have no hair. Your hair fell out. It's a pant load, Chuck. You lost like a, your hair fell out. You lost like a hundred pounds, and you've got tons of energy. Now. Yeah. <laughs> but he also had a bunch of beer. <laughs> so I, I've got a question about. Um, uh, I, I want to keep this vague, so I, I don't want to. If I if I step over any bounds, let me know, and we can cut it out of the show. But yeah. Uh, when you visited. Uh, some lodge that you went to go to, you led an in-lodge meditation. I've done that a number of times. 
what's the response been? And beyond that, I also want to know if you've kept in contact with these lodges and have they continued to do these sort of like in-lodge guided meditations and and what's the feedback on that? Okay, well, to, so the first question, there have been a number of lodges that have welcomed me to facilitate some sort of a meditative experience to do a guided meditation or to do chanting in their lodge room. Uh, in some cases, it's actually been in uh, in an open tiled lodge. In other cases, they have closed the lodge and gone to refreshment for that purpose, but whatever they feel like they need to do in their jurisdiction. But in every case, it's been well received and the brothers have just kind of come out of it saying like, we need to do more of this. Why isn't this something we've been doing all along? And, um, uh, and so, and, and so that's been a really wonderful thing to experience. And some, some of these lodges already have like in, in the, in the observant lodges, a lot of them already have like moments of silence for brothers to practice some sort of silent practice. Um, during the process of, of opening the lodge. Um, but they haven't necessarily done something like chanting, which can have a very powerful effect in terms of bringing the brothers together in a deep psychological, spiritual way. Um, and so their experience of those kinds of things in a lot of cases has been like, Oh my gosh, this has got to be, this has got to be something that, you know, that is part of our Masonic experience. Let's do more of this. Um, so there's that. And I think there's also, um, the, the second question was, you ask, have I kept in contact with any, you know, any of those? There are a few that I have. Um I'm not sure that anything that I have introduced has been taken into the standard operations of any lodge uh -huh. uh, other than maybe just reinforcing their commitment to practice some silent contemplative time or to practice some time, have some contemplative music as part of their lodge experience. What I have heard of, though, is that brothers... Um, are incorporating some of my exercises into what they do outside of their official lodge meetings. Mm -hmm. And, and so I was just talking about this North Carolina, um, uh, education program out of the grand lodge. Well, one of their texts is my book. And so they're, they're <laughs> wow. telling brothers as they go through that esoteric study course that there's this book over here that's got these contemplative practices in it that will enhance your experience of all of this philosophical, spiritual side of the fraternity. Oh, God's brother. Wow. Do you remember, do you remember 20 years ago? That's what yeah. I was going to ask about. Barely. Like, this is, <laughs> this is so different from, like, the scrambling I know. This is the, the kind of thing we about, Eric. Dig, oh, it's so so much better. That's something I, that leads into something I want to ask. Like, so you came to the system fifteen to twenty years ago, correct? No, um, longer than I that. First, no, I said, yeah, I so. first published anonymously the system of contemplative masonry in two thousand, eighteen years ago. That's, that's yeah, more or less twenty years. Yeah, and so 
and then the book's been out for over a year now. Has there been anything that's happened since the book has been released that has changed your thoughts on the system itself? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Damn, I'm glad you that's asked. a good question. Holy crap. I wish I, wish I would have thought of that one. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get Matt more beer more often. Yeah, Matt's like... Super interviewer. He's all there. Barbara Wawa now. <laughs> yeah, and then when he starts waxing philosophical, it's like who? who I know. Is holy this crap! Crazy Buddha dude. <laughs> Maybe we need to teach Matt to like invoke Dionysius when he's sober. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. To answer your question, yes, and it actually is what I'm going to be basing my second book on. Mm. Um. This, and that is—is is this that revenge I, of contemplative masonry? <laughs> that's, that's right. Contemplative masonry two electric boogaloo. <laughs> oh, contemplative masonry two, the lodge of doom. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so the thing that when I wrote the first set of exercises when I did that back in 2000 partly because of where I was in my own development as a contemplative practitioner and also partly because of the the atmosphere of the fraternity itself it was primarily aimed at individuals doing solitary practice and one of the things that I have come to appreciate over the last year and really more than that, I, I would say that increasingly, I, it it's definitely magnified over the last year since I printed the book, since I published the book. But since we started the Academy of Reflection in the Valley of, in the Scottish Rite Valley of Guthrie, Oklahoma, one of the things that I have gained a much deeper appreciation of is the importance of group work. Um, now, this is something that I myself knew but like I said, because of those other factors, when I originally wrote the book, it was really primarily oriented towards individuals doing solitary practice. So my next book is going to be focused on how do Masons do inner work together. And, uh, and I'm absolutely convinced that, that this is not only an important thing, but that the Masonic experience is heavily oriented towards working together. I mean, you, you think about all our language, it's definitely there. We're not a bunch of craftsmen who are just doing our thing independently. I mean, you know, if we were all like Finnish Masons who were doing the artistic work on columns and, and, and doing the, the bas relief around the crown of the temple or something like that, that would be more individualistic, but we're not. You know, our, our mythos, the language of our mythos, is that we work together as individuals, but also as a corporate entity. And so we need to have a contemplative approach that includes both of those. I have to think that the work you've done in creating and guiding the Academy of Reflection within the Scottish Rite has impacted that as well, not just the feedback you received from Contemplative Masonry. 
Yeah, it has. And, 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 and an interesting thing there is that the curriculum for the Academy of Reflection is still very much about individual practice, but our primary form of practice, the thing that we actually do the most, are the group meditations at the reunions. And that got my attention. That there are a lot more brothers that are interested in that than they are interested in doing the solitary, isolated work at home that most of the coursework is written for. And that's something I've noticed at reunions at Guthrie, because I, I go back to the unions there. But uh, I've noticed that brothers who have no experience with meditation, or even brothers who do have experience with meditation, being in that environment and experiencing the Academy of Reflection, that it, it really has a big impact on them. So I was curious how it impacted your, your views on the system you've created. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right on target. I mean, it definitely has. I don't know how many times I've had brothers that were visiting Guthrie or, or maybe just they've been at Guthrie for years but just decided to come to one of those meditations, those group meditations that we do, and afterwards said, that's the most profound experience I've ever had in my life. Why do you think it is that that, that group experience, that creation of Gregor is almost more impactful than a solitary or a individual experience? Um, I think part of it is because a lot of times one of the, when you do individual practice, particularly early on, one of the struggles I think that a lot of people have is, Oh, I'm just doing all of this and I'm just making it happen. You know, I'm just imagining these things. I'm just telling myself what's going to happen, and then it happens. Ah, I'm, just, I'm just having bullshit dreams that don't mean anything. Just, but that's the thing. Right. Like that's that's <laughs> totally what's supposed to happen. Those the those well, the important yes, shit. I, I know Giordano Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> David, I think I would need a dollar. <laughs> but for a lot of guys, they've been raised in a culture that tells them that. You know that when they're doing things on their own like that, it's just a, it's just a wish fulfilling fantasy. It doesn't really mean anything. It's a figment of their imagination. That's the language. But when you go into a group meditation, and someone else is leading it, and that someone leaves space for things to happen, and you experience things happening that you didn't plan that you didn't think into existence. And then afterwards, when you talk about it and you hear that the same thing happened for other guys, not just you, all of a sudden you realize, man, there's something going on here. There's more to this consciousness stuff than just me deciding what's going to happen in my mind. But I'm just curious why, almost... why it takes that group setting for that to happen, because some of the most profound meditative experiences that I've had have been honestly ones which you've led in group settings. I've had very few on an individual basis, mostly even in a float tank. Yeah. I what think is it about that group setting? It's the creation of the egregore. It's, there, it's yeah, the, there, it's there the collection of, of consciousnesses, right? Like mm -hmm. you have multiple multiple fingers of the same hand in, just, the, in the same all stuck into the same pie are they does that serve as an amplifier or is it it's just it's just fingers just, of all the same hands stuck into chuck's beard <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just i mean it seems like i mean it's, it, it seems like cerebrally it, it shouldn't make any difference you should it, look at it it's, it's, it's not a cerebral or, thing 
Yeah, right? yeah like, but, it, but it all is. It's not, it, though. Yeah, your, yeah, your, yeah. your cerebral thing is that's too fleshy and physical. Like, But to me, I mean, okay, let's, either way, it just seems odd that it would, that it, let's look why at it. is there that dichotomy okay, let's say you want to buy an individual setting? You want to buy a computer that's going to play an awesome video game. Mm-hmm. Are you going to buy a computer that's only got one processor with one core? Or are you going to buy a computer that's got, like, lots of processors and lots of cores? But as an individual, you're only conscious, conscious of... Yeah. No, awesome. you're not. You're only conscious because, of no, the computer as a system not true. as a singular unit. We, you're not we, conscious of the individual cores. We, we know that's we, not true. We nerd what about, what nerd about computers that are connected back to a each other? Bit what do you have to think, Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, let's chat. This is a question for, yeah. for Chuck. No, I don't think it's... <laughs> I'm just curious why, 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 why the group has a bigger impact than... Yeah. Uh, At so least initially, because I know eventually you can get to the point where as an individual you can reach those states. And I have yeah. reached those states. But it seems so much easier in the group setting than it does individually. Yeah. I think oh, there are a couple actually, of them. Okay, that's a good and, question. And one of them is that there is this kind of magnifying thing that happens. When there are multiple minds focused on the same thing, uh, there's a... Uh, there's a um, um, the word's escaping me right now, but there's there's an effect that goes beyond addition, right? It's exponential. There's an exponential thing that happens. It's a harmonic frequency. Yeah. So there's one factor. It's a syzygy of the sinex. Sibilance. <laughs> <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> The other factor that I'm really zeroing in on right now, and this might make some people uncomfortable, but it's true. And that is that when you go into group meditation and you and one person is leading, there's a moment of surrender that happens. If I'm going to allow myself to follow what the the person who's facilitating this says, then I'm going to get my own doubt and disbelief and hesitance out of the way to a greater degree. I'm going to surrender to the process. And I think that what happens a lot of time in in isolated personal practice, particularly at the beginning stages for a lot of people, is that A, they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to surrender to the process. And B, even if they have some idea about it, they don't like the sound of it. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think, I think that those are all relative to, to why group meditations can have a more profound impact. That makes sense because it took you saying that for me to realize having something to focus on, the, the person guiding the meditation kind of, Cuts out the discursive background chatter. Yeah, background. it makes yeah. sense to me too. Actually, for your experience, Matt, because I remember the first time I did a group ritual with you that wasn't Masonic uh, at MabCon Zero mm-hmm. or Negative One, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, the the uh, the amount of like uh, environments changing and consciousness changing that you were used to in the ritual was really startling to me. And maybe that served as a uh, surrogate for the group ritual sort of thing. Like maybe there's a, 
Maybe there's something that... Oh, jeez, I totally... It's possible that I've had more beer than Matt. Well, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a but it's like sort of like a Because sense. consciousness is nothing more than contents. <clears throat> yeah, but... Whenever you only have one book I focus on within the con- the contents of consciousness, yeah. then it makes it easier for everything else to fall away. And to knock that loose, right? To knock loose that sort of, like, anchor to give you the ability to escape. Mm. You know, you need something that's... You need something that's going to take you out of your, your normal, everyday yeah. comfort zone, right? And, mm. and maybe for some people, uh, it doesn't take very much, and maybe for some people it takes... More and also there are different yeah. triggers, right? So there are things that are gonna like for me, a float tank is the same as having a guided meditation. It's okay. I've got to have. I've never been able to reach that that point where everything else falls away, mm-hmm. except for a guided meditation or a situation like float tank where I don't have no other external stimulus. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. I'm cool with that. <laughs> okay, we're, we're recording. All right, we are at the Legrowski, and we're drinking uh, Logston Farmhouse Gnome for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's a very dark beer. What did she say? It was a, a, a dark... Belgian strong? Or Belgian... Belgian quad, possibly? It's 10%. 10% so, ABV. Sure. And definitely barrel-aged. She definitely said barrel-aged. I could probably look. It's like 10 feet away. Yeah. Why don't you sniff, sniff, sniff it? first. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, that smells it awesome. It smells like dates. It smells like... Coconut. Raisins. That's a coconut. Maybe coconut? Lay's potato chip oil. <laughs> Which is coconut oil or palm oil? Uh, <laughs> smell a lot of like sheep hoof. No barnyard <laughs> duck fat. <laughs> Muskrat this beer's parts. Been comfy. Yeah. <laughs> this small shows, they have this right here and then yeah. Oh, oh man! Oh, there's like banana milkshake. Really so, creamy. Really yeah, creamy. yeah, wow. Oh, and the oak in the end, like in the finish, I got some. I got like it tasted like vanilla essence mm. with coffee, maybe or something. But like the heat, the booze really exploded out. But it was never sharp. It was no, never it was sharp good. Heat. It all sort of melts together really nicely. This is a. This is a delicious beer. I mean, Logston, I would, I wouldn't expect anything less than this. It's got a nice, slick. Mouthful too, like yeah, uh, oily. Mm. Yeah, really, really awesome beer. In the um, second sip, I tasted some kind of sharpness, like a maybe like a acidity from like a apricot. Uh, it's, that's not the right word. You're talking about. Yeah, yeah, sort of a sort of a really sharp, uh, but it all it's it's really well balanced, mm-hmm. and there definitely maybe that banana milkshake that I first got wasn't totally accurate, but there is like a warm smoothness to it, like it's all. Yeah, this is pretty impressive. Really impressive. What do you think that their um, what kind of yeast do you think they used? Because uh, there's got to be some. 
flavors from that, right? Probably an Abbeville yeast, or uh, maybe the ones made for a Belgian strong. I noticed a lot of people, a lot of the bigger breweries are switching over to uh, Imperial out of Portland. Imperial yeast. Yeast people? Mm-hmm. Cool. So before I would have said, like, oh, maybe this was WLP 575 uh, mm-hmm. from White Labs. They're Belgian Australian or something from my yeast, but this could be monastic from Imperial or mm-hmm. uh, uh, their gnome yeast. They have a gnome yeast? Huh? I guess that would make sense. I know that um, uh, uh, Oakshire Brewing out of uh, Eugene used to have a winter ale that they called Angry Gnome. And it was, um, I think it was a, it was a strong amber, but it was delicious. I used to really like that stuff. I think most of the time if you find like a yeast with gnome in the name, it's propped up from Le Chouf. Oh, maybe so. It's like a Le Chouf yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, Le Chouf has a dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had it in a zillion years, but I remember it being really enjoyable. Good. I had it at uh, first time I had that was at Delirium Truman's Cafe in uh, Brussels. Oh, right. I forgot you went over there. Mm. All right, that's really good. So uh, I'm going to stop the recording. I think okay. we reviewed this pretty well. It's good. Really? <laughs> I got to talk about being in the yeast when Chuck was uh, doing guided meditation. Uh, being in the yeast. Yeast, not yeast. <laughs> the yeast, not yeast. So, Joey, uh, how's it going? Good. How's, how's it going, man? Good. This is actually a really good conversation we're having. This is a really good chat. It is. Um, I like having Chuck on. He's a pretty smart dude. He is. But you know what I really like about Chuck is that he's got the sort of down-to-earth quality. So, like, the longer I've known him, the more comfortable I've been talking to him. Yeah, you can be a total asshat. Or to totally me, or serious. Chuck. No, just like me. You can be serious or... Oh, oh with Chuck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Serious or casual. Hey, look. He's got the red book of Carl Jung in the background. Holy crap, he's also got a sword. He's also got a giant vagina with a boot in the middle of it. A <laughs> vagina. <laughs> the Buddha. <laughs> no, that's like the real red book from Carl Jung. That's the big one. Like he's got it like in the centerpiece. It's like an altar piece. It's like centered in there. It you know, means a lot. I don't, I don't like to say... Oh, wait, hold on. <sighs> also, Chuck, are you wearing a post-it note? Involved. Chuck, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just three. noticing. What's that one? Sierra Nevada this maple is... scotch. Yes. Um, is that an original uh, printing of the scotch. of the red book? Sierra Nevada maple scotch. I uh, don't think it's it's not first edition. No. Not first edition, but the one of the recent editions. It's the yeah. original. It's, it's a zeroth edition. He sneaked into Carl Jung's house and just sort of stole it. Yeah. Got it from his son. Uh, Matt, ask him questions about the beer. Sierra Nevada? Uh, this is a Sierra Nevada maple, maple scotch. Maple scotch. Was it in scotch barrels? What was the... Well, let me, let me read to you. If I can. Oh, they just actually they add maple syrup to the uh, to the process. Huh. 
yeah it doesn't say where in the process they add it but that's the deal it's it's, it's a traditional uh scotch style ale with uh with the maple syrup somewhere in there it's not super sweet that's one of the things i like about it and it's not super mapley either the maple is just a hint We're back on live. Oh, it's always live. Oh. <laughs> really good. I like that. I wow. like that. It's got some Belgian qualities to it. Nice. Because you know it's it's so it's a Scotch ale, and then mm. just a, some of the a little bit of the maple gives it that kind of floral quality that we were talking about mm. earlier. Very nice. It brings out the floral aspects of the hops. Yeah, you ought to try that. I think you might like that, Matt. I'll try, check it out. I'd love to hear your your masterful analysis of it. I'd like to hear your creative genius reflecting on this beer. Mm. So let's okay. unpack it, Matt. Oh, there's something I'd like to, to bring you to, even though this is not a Masonic podcast. I, I have yes. the advantage of, of being one of the, the, the few masters who chose to have you conduct a guided meditation during the lodge. And I had a physiological experience while you were doing that. That literally, like, if I think about it today, it still invokes the same physiological feelings, sensation. Yeah. Um, while you were conducting the, the guided meditation during Lodge, I felt the warmth of the sun beating down on me. Mm. And I still can put myself in that. Like, even today, like, in Portland, where it's, like, negative <laughs> 32 degrees... If I was standing out on the street and I think about the sensation, I actually have a physiological warming of my body. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering, like, is that, has there been other, other members of lodges, other masters, other people that have expressed similar experiences during the guided meditation, the, the feeling of, of being in the warmth of like kind of the, the, the rapture of the divine yeah, I think in different ways that has happened. Um, the hug of Sophia. Yeah, the hug of Sophia. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 uh, so one of the things that I often try to do is to get brothers to chant together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have probably the the thing that I have heard more often than not is the sense of awe. Mm that brothers experience when they have all been chanting together, whether it's been, uh, whether it's been Om or whether it's been Amen. Uh, I'll use one or the other, depending upon the group that I'm working with and kind of the sense of, of, of what their resonance is. Well, that sounds all new agey, doesn't it? Um, no, it doesn't. But, no, no. So airy fairy. Everybody knows that the, the new age is, is new. That's like new thought. That sounds uh, that sounds like real chanting. I mean, I remember having that feeling. Yeah. Sorry, I just came back. I don't know what you guys are held. What the hell you guys are talking about? The thing you were yeah. talking about. Where have you been, Eric? Uh, you know, I was um, chatting with my Senex. You disappeared in the mist for a while. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> yeah. It was good. Yeah. So so that that sense of so there's a kind of when, when you're chanting like that. And, and you really get into it. Uh, one of the effects of the chanting is that it, particularly those sounds of, of Om or Amen, 
they can stimulate this really kind of pervasive sense of, of bliss. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all of your kind of discursive of discursive thoughts kind of fade into the background and you're just aware of this wonderful feeling that's at a physical level at an emotional level and that it's clearing your mind and, uh, and opening you up. And, uh, and I've had so many brothers say to me after having led that, that that was a really profound experience for them. And not only did they have all of those experiences that I was talking about, but for them, it brought a new dimension to the idea of peace and harmony, Masonic peace and harmony, because we talk about that a lot in Masonry, that peace and harmony are the chief conditions of the lodge, right? That that's what we're all supposed to be trying to experience together not not just that, but that's one of the, the peace and harmony is one of the things that we're supposed to be experiencing with each other in the lodge, and 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 I've had more than one brother comment to me after those chanting meditations that, wow, that's what I want to feel every time I go into a lodge room, and now I can remember that. <laughs> How have you have you thought? Uh, and this is I know going to be part of book two. Contemplative masonry: The Wrath of Khan. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, how? What's the best way for a lodge to facilitate that experience after you've left? Like they're not going to have your voice. Yeah. What. What do you think they well, should do? Well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to come out with a series of guided meditations that will only be 29.95. <laughs> Which leads me to my next question, Chuck. Per lodge, per student meeting. I developed a, developed a system called the bridge, and you have to work your way up it. <laughs> There's pills and a whole detox program, and right, a sacred well, ladder. I would like to start a sex cult. I mean, that's, I've been working on that for a while. Yeah, we know. It's a 33rd degree, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um. <laughs> Never mind. That was a joke. That was not a joke. <laughs> Everybody who knows Joey knows that was not a joke. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I know that um, I, I know that being able to facilitate guided meditations is a skill. And and knowing how to use your voice is part of that. I'm actually going to address that in the next book. What deep? Yeah, and um, and I know that's true. But particularly with chanting, that's not so important. Really? Because because when the lodge as a whole is chanting, it's not my voice. It's the corporate voice that that the guys are tuning into now in a guided meditation where I'm saying, okay, now imagine this. And then you see that, and then you feel this, that's my voice in, in people's heads, but in chanting, it's the corporate voice. Mm-hmm. The voice and of I the hate, body. I'm almost hesitant. I mean, can we go back and take corporate out? Because I'm no, 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 I think no, we can talk about like the word, the word corporate means they can unpack that. Yeah. It yeah. means bodily. Yeah, it yeah. means a body. We're using yeah. it in the sense of a, a body. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I have a question. Kind of 
I'm being a little selfish here, but going back to oh, no. kind of the theme kicking off the podcast. So, again, the system that you developed 20-odd years ago definitely rooted in Western esotericism and a dualistic mindset. Has, <laughs> have you rooted. shifted... Well, yeah, oh, yeah, well, rooted I mean, in, a, in, a, yeah, in a dualistic mindset. Mm-hmm. Have you personally shifted any at all to more of an Eastern, non-dualistic <laughs> mindset? <laughs> what are you trying since, to... Since did, the system is developed? And, did you ask and this? Is that going to... Well, no, no, it's just a slightly different... Okay. You're, you're just trying to crack him. You're trying to crack the prisoner. Well, no, I, 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 I said, that's why I said I'm being okay. selfish. We got like Buddhist cop, non-Buddhist cop. No, let me no, let me preface. No, I want to preface that by saying because personally, my personal journey has been it's Western t- esotericism and dualism uh-huh. has brought me to a point to where I am embracing non-dualism. If it wasn't uh-huh. for dualism, I wouldn't be to the point where I am embracing non-dualism. Okay. Right. All right. I and I'm curious if, if you've gone through a similar experience or, if, and I'm not saying dualism is a negative thing or it's a bad place to be. Sure, sure. I'm just curious if, if your position on that has changed at all over the last 20 years. Uh, okay. Well, let me answer, let me answer your question in a way that's not exactly direct, but I think we'll say a lot. I was a non-dualist when I wrote those experiences, those exercises. Really? Yep. Huh. I can see that. So, again, I'm just talking through beer. I feel like they're very rooted in Golden Dawn tradition, Western, you know, Western but, medicine. But the thing is, like, none yeah. of that stuff is strictly dualist. No, no, but for the time... Am I making any sense at all? A little bit. I may not be. I may not be. But I do feel. I do feel like I, I understand what Chuck is saying. Yeah. Um, is I think that one of the things that happens in Western esotericism is this profound confusion in the in the language, right? Like the the way that um, that the Western esoteric experience is is communicated uh, doesn't do a very good job of. Uh, of clarifying that line between dualism and non-dualism. And I almost feel like that line didn't even become important until we started looking at like the Nag Hammadi stuff mm-hmm. and seeing how Gnostic Christians. Well, even, uh, even before that, like Dion Fortune, she even talks about like, yeah. there's a very clear line between. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I, I guess I sort of feel like um, a lot of times that line doesn't, doesn't matter a whole lot. And a lot of times, yeah. Um, I'm not of, even curious. I'm not even saying that there's that it should matter. I'm just curious personally. The truck has uh-huh. that. It's interesting to hear that you wrote it from a non-dualistic perspective. So that kind of changes my. I I just assumed incorrectly. I, I superimposed that you you were approaching it from a dualistic perspective. So yeah. Well, it's understandable because um because i think as you and and eric have both been saying i mean it's it's easy to listen to western language and hear dualism mm-hmm. it's just easy to do um i mean we in in western esotericism we take a theistic approach to things and whether that's polytheistic or it's monotheistic it's still theistic i mean we talk about beings or a being and uh, and we talk about it in terms of something separate from ourselves. That's the language. But once we understand the language is metaphorical, 
or once we start to think of the language as metaphorical, then it starts to free us from the the necessity of putting it all in a in a dualistic context. And um, and so yeah, if you look at some of those particularly master mason exercises, um, there's the there's the exercise on asking yourself what you are. What am I? Am I my body? And you go through this process of de-identifying with the different aspects of your being. And you're left with this question of, well, if I'm not my body, if I'm not my emotions, if I'm not my mind, what am I? I'm my cat. And <laughs> <laughs> not your cat. <laughs> no, no it's, it's, it's like the pointing exercise. It's right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so there's that, there's that one exercise. And then there's the exercise of, of chanting Aum. Um, and, and then also the exercise that I added to the master's degree for the book that wasn't in the 2000 manuscript, the, the, the original manuscript. And that's the, the exercise about love and recognizing and, and embracing, uh, the love that connects all of us. And then recognizing that, you know, that there's this kind of universal level of love that we can tap into. Um, all of those things at their deepest levels, I think, at least hint at non-dualism. Um, I don't think they necessitate taking a non-dualist perspective, and I hope they don't, because it was my intention to not enforce a particular philosophical point of view, but to leave those things open for the person that's doing the work. Hmm. Do you think that masonry as a whole would benefit if it was approached more from a non-dualistic perspective. Wait, that presupposes that masonry is approached from a dualist perspective. Which I would say it is. And I do not necessarily agree with that. (laughs) I want you guys to fight right now. Y'all arm wrestle and this will decide. (laughs) I feel like based on when it was developed, it was definitely developed from a dualistic perspective. I would seem to agree. I don't know that that's the case. I really don't know that that's what was going on. No, historically, it would have been developed. Historically, there was a lot of stuff Because I don't value any of your opinions. I want to know what Chuck thinks. Okay. Okay, Chuck, what do you think? (laughs) Um, So what was your your actual question, Matt? If masonry would benefit from more of a non-dualistic Western perspective. Uh, I would say that that it would be of benefit to Masons to have the opportunity to, to, to wrestle with that possibility. Um, very, I, very politic, very politic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hesitant to say if it would be good for Masonry as a whole in terms of like, should this be, should this be, because the implication, I think, for me at least, and, and this may not be what you were getting at, probably isn't, but the implication for me in that question is, should there be something institutionally that we're doing to encourage Masons to consider a non-dualistic perspective? Um, and I don't necessarily know that that would be a good thing. But I do think it's a good thing to say uh, for for Masons to be exposed to the possibility of non-dualism. And I actually think that's in the Scottish Rite. I think that's present 
in the Scottish Rite. Um, in fact, I think there's language all over our rituals that suggests non-dualism in the Scottish Rite. Uh, but here's one of the ironic things is, is that once you start, once you start considering the possibility of non-dualism, certainly once you start thinking like a non-dualist, you see it everywhere, even in the midst of all the dualistic language, it's there. Um, and, and so, uh, because Freemasonry is designed to, to, to work with a Western mindset, which is at least superficially dualistic, I don't know that I want to monkey with that too much. And I know, you know, I know that Joey likes monkeys, and so. <laughs> I'm just going to start calling you the mechanic. You just crawl up there in the engine and start monkeying around. Yeah. <laughs> so I just just so that I can eat up more of the memory on Eric's computer here, um, I've been I've been going through kind of a, a, a journey of self exploration lately, based on Young's idea of entering the forest at its darkest point, finding your father, and retrieving mm. that knowledge of the ancestors and bringing it back with you. Yeah. So that's something I've found is very, very prevalent in masonry is the idea of the ancestors and, and, and those that have gone before us and the father. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of, it's coming to, to terms with, you know, that, that your upbringing and your, your, your paternal figure. Cause I've always found that my, my benevolent maternal, my, my mother figure, the Sophia has always been there and always been supporting, but my father is more the challenging adversary of that. Yeah. The idea of living up to higher expectations and, and not um, being defeated by the lesser things and, and, and trying to come to a higher understanding of things. And so through the, 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 the readings of your, your, um, your meditations, one of the things I would look for is more of the, the understanding of that divine acceptance of yourself that the deep within the forest kind of person that I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's uh that's really important. I think one of the, th that's another thing that I would say that, that has changed in terms of my own uh, contemplative practice and how I work as a contemplative teacher over the years is that when I originally wrote the exercises, I was really of the mind that it's important to have a discipline. It's important to think of yourself in terms of, of being uh, a work in progress. It's important to have goals. Um, and, um, um, and so one of the things that got lost was the importance of also really deep self-acceptance. And, um, and so I really appreciate what you're saying there, Nate, because that's definitely something over the years that I have learned a deeper appreciation for. And, um, uh, and so it may be something that I incorporate into this next book in some ways. It's definitely something that I, that I will be talking more about and have been talking more about as, um, as I work with other people in, in, in providing some guidance, <clears throat> In contemplative work, because um, 
you know, if it's, it's really interesting that if we're at war with ourselves, then we really can't make peace with anything else. And, um, and, and there are all these myths that have people encountering a kind of, uh, dweller on the threshold, a kind of guardian who's, who seems to be standing ready to, to slaughter you if you try to pass into their territory. And those things are often representations of that own sense of not being worthy, our own sense of not being worthy of, of moving into something, of, of not being ready for it, of, of, of not being good enough in some way or another, of lacking in some way. Um, and, and the fact is, is that it's just that projection that gets in the way. That what we were talking about earlier in terms of wholeness uh, and, 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 and recognizing that our humanity, our, the reality of our, of our spiritual being is, is, is so rich and it's full of all kinds of things that we can think of as opposites. To accept all of that is liberating. Liberation doesn't come from denying the things about ourselves that we would rather not be true. Liberation comes from not worrying about those things and embracing all of who we are and and choosing what it is about ourselves that we want to magnify. But we can't really make that choice, and we can't really do that work of magnifying those things until we've accepted all of it. Yeah. I want to make one more comment, since we're all throwing in one more comment and one more question or whatever. I want to talk a little bit more about non-dualism because um, it can be, I, I think that there are some common misunderstandings about non-dualism and I'm not, and I don't, and I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that this is anything that, that any of you four guys are dealing with, but some of your listeners may be. And I know for a fact that in my background, in my own personal development, this was something that I thought at one time. And that's, that's this idea of everything is just one thing, that there really is no duality. And that, um, uh, and that everything that appears to be separate and distinct and different is just an illusion. That's one way of thinking about non-duality, of non-dualism. Um, but it's, you know... It's a limited way, and and it's not actually faithful to the ancient traditional understandings of what non-dualism actually is about. Because if you go back and you look at um, at Advaita Vedanta, as expressed in the Upanishads and 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 some of those ancient traditions out of India, the the idea of non-dualism includes this sense of, of maya. And we talk about maya a lot of times. The word that we use when we translate maya into English, try to translate it into English, is we use the word illusion. The problem with the word illusion in English is, is that we often think that means then that maya has 
no reality, that it has no substance, that it has no value, um, and that it's something to be gotten past. That's not really what the word maya means in Sanskrit. What maya means in Sanskrit really is more something along the lines of a false appearance, not an illusion in the sense of totally meaningless or totally distracting or totally false or, or unreal. But it is, Maya is a word that reminds us that, that what we, that the way we experience reality is not reality. Right. That makes that sense. I, you follow me? Yeah. 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 And uh, it's not denying the reality of the dualistic world to say that it is Maya. It is simply reminding us that our perception of the dualistic world is not complete. It's not whole. It's almost... Yeah. It's almost kind of saying that our perception of the world doesn't even deny it doesn't define non-dualism, right? Like, say more about that. Well, we can perceive the world, uh, and it's always a false perception. Like, sure, but we know that even as a non-dualist, we know that even even as as knowing how the material world works and how our material experience might work in a non-dualistic setting we know that our perception is false it's never it's never accurate it's never up to date it's never true it's always uh falsified by the flaws in our in our in our apparatus our 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 ways of of perceiving right like yes so even uh even in that sense like it, it it shows that if you are a non-dualist, you will look at the dualist and say, like, you're a dualist because your method of perceiving is false. Mm. But even a non-dualist, or even a dualist, a dualist will still say, like, yes, of course, my method of perceiving is false, but my method of comprehending is true because my method of comprehending is meat that but, thinks. But at the same time... Wouldn't you also say that the non-dualist says that the dualist views things, everything is approached from a dualist view that there is this idea of separation. Whereas a non-dualist says I would say that that's not the case. I would say that even a dualist will know that that separation exists. A dualist will will know because of... uh, A non-dualist wouldn't say that separation exists to begin with. Right, right. But a dualist... It's all bullshit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. Neither we're people to, know what the fuck is going on. We're going to have That's to make this. <laughs> Dualism is going to have to be a separate episode. Yeah. Uh, because Sorry. We, we have Sorry. to sign off. We have to. It's getting late. They're vacuuming and they're going to want to okay. kick us out soon. Uh, Chuck, right. can you tell us where people can find you online and where people can yes. find your book and where they can find your future book? Sure. Um, so I have a website, chuckdunning.com. And you can go on there and you can see, uh, you can find a link to my book. You can find links to articles that I've written, some articles that I've only put on the website. You can find out more information about um, uh, workshops that I can offer, presentations that I can offer. Um, There's also a link there to my Facebook page. So I have a Facebook page for CR Chuck Dunning Jr., 
uh, called Contemplative Builder on Facebook. You can you can find more information about me there. My book uh, currently, uh, Contemplative Masonry, is is available on Amazon.com and on Barnes and Noble. And um, I can't say much more about the second book yet because I'm still in the process of writing it. And, um, but I'm sure eventually it will be published through Stone Guild, the same publisher that did my first book. And um, and we'll see it on Amazon just like the first one. It's me, uh, Contemplative Masonry versus the Temple of Doom. <laughs> the the actual title that I'm planning on is the Contemplative Lodge Masons doing inner work together. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, and we are MyOwnChemicalBromance.com, and you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and other podcasty things. Yes, and uh, <laughs> and thank you guys for listening to us. I hope that you come back next time when we. Uh, when we argue even less yes. or more more no. uh, Yahtzee <laughs> Hail Eris Hail Eris All Hail Discordia